So I got to speak to Agapi. Dr. Agapi Armidas is an anesthesiologist in New York City and surrounding areas. And she has been practicing since 2009. Initially, she specialized in pediatric anesthesia. Her holistic approach to healing led her to pursue energy works years ago and is trained as a Reiki and medical Reiki master. She has had a long-standing interest for end-of-life work and is a trained end-of-life doula. She started facilitating virtual death cafes at the onset of COVID-19 in order to lessen the traumatic impact the pandemic had on everyone, especially healthcare workers. And now she's planning to pursue a formal fellowship training in hospice and palliative care medicine starting this summer. This podcast may challenge your beliefs about well-being. Hi, we are Rani and Suraj, a husband and wife team, psychiatrists, authors and well-being coaches. We guide heart-centered entrepreneurs and professionals to their true well-being. We bring our mental health and coaching experience and understanding of Eastern spirituality into our conversations every week. So if you're excited to embrace clarity, fun and ease in your life, relationships and business, stay tuned. Welcome to the Listening into Wellbeing podcast. Hi, Agapi. Thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast interview. Really looking forward to it. It's my pleasure to be here and I'm also excited and I'm ready. Wonderful. And just to let people know how I met you through Clubhouse. I have been meeting a lot of very interesting and lovely people through Clubhouse recently, and it just feels like we can connect, isn't it, when we hear other people talk, and this is what made me reach out to you. It has been incredible for me as well. I've been on Clubhouse for less than three weeks, but the level of connection that I find there is unlike any other platform that I've experienced. Yeah, no, yes, I agree. I'm glad I met you as well. <laughs> yes, because there's something about Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. They're all great. But when we connect to someone's voice, and this is what has come out so much, isn't it? It feels so authentic because you can't hide. You can hide behind a lovely photo and say all the yeah. good things. But your your voice gives it away and people get the vibe from there. I agree because, um, you know, when I do my death cafes on Zoom, for example, um, Sometimes people may not feel inspired to share something because people are looking at them. Yeah. So I think that by having just your voice alone, it, it kind of, you lose some of the the barriers, you know? Yeah, that's They true. drop away and you feel more, more vulnerable and more likely to share some things that you were not on video. Yeah. I'm always interested in finding out doctors who are holistic, like, you know, they are trained in a traditional um, sense, and yet they are holistic. When I read in your bio that you are an anesthesiologist, but you are also a Reiki practitioner and a Reiki trainer, and you know, you talk about love and you talk about that uh, cafe, uh, love project, I say, whoa, I want to reach out to her because then um, maybe there are lots of people like that, holistic doctors, but I know very few that I can count. And so I had to reach out to you. So that's what got me curious. Mm -hmm. Have you always been like this? Have you always thought in a very broad sense, even though you went to medical school? Yes, I have. Um, I mean, my love, my name means love. You know, my first name means unconditional I didn't know love. that. Yeah. Oh. So my grandmother was named Agape and I inherited her name. You know, growing up, 
as a young child with that name was kind of different and interesting. Um, even in Greece, where I grew up, it was not a very common name. But coming to this country where, you know, most people didn't know what this, what, what it means or how to say it, um, I didn't, it wasn't until I was older when I started really looking on my own self, when I started taking ownership of it and, you know, understanding the depth of and the meaning of words and the energy that they carry. And yeah, I think I, even before my medical school training, I was very much into the whole person approach and, you know, so I think when I was applying for medical schools, in fact, I applied to, um, allopathic MD only schools, but then a year later when I didn't get in the first time, I had to retake my, the MCAT, which is the, um, the medical college aptitude test that you have to take in order to get into medical school in the United States. Um, I changed my mind and I started looking to osteopathic schools, DO, which are more holistic in approach in their approach. And that's where I ended up going. I ended up becoming a DO because of the more holistic approach to um, seeing how seeing a patient as a, as a whole human and diagnosing them and treating them as a whole human instead of just um, their body and their physical. Mm. So what does DO stand for? Doctor of Osteopathy. Oh, so did you also do that? So uh, in, there are two types of physicians in the United States, uh, allopathic, which is MD, uh, and then osteopathic, which is a DO. I see. I get of osteopathy. It's basically uh, the same level of training, but in addition to the training that MDs get, we also learn about um, osteopathy, which is learning to diagnose and treat by knowing the musculoskeletal system and applying techniques to treat similar to what chiropractic. Yeah. Uh, for you to understand, you know, it's a little bit similar to chiropractic, um, but so much more in depth, obviously. I see. But after you, you graduate from an osteopathic medical school, you can go into any field that you want, just like allopathic. So I chose uh, anesthesiology. And or you can continue to do osteopathy alone, manipulation, let's call it, mm. and do a fellowship after, right after medical school and just specialize in osteopathy and just take care of people in that sense after you're done instead of going down, you know, a non-traditional pathway like anesthesiology, mm. you can stay in, in um, osteopathy and further study it and just learn how to um, treat people using, you know, the tools that you learn in osteopathic school. That's really interesting. Thank you for making me aware because I would have imagined that after osteopathy, you just ended there. I didn't realize that you can go on just like you do with the allopathic medicine. I know you are an anesthesiologist and I know that now you are uh, transitioning to hospice care. So tell me why you got interested in hospice care. Well, that's a long journey. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid, I was never afraid of death and dying and um, I also had, you know, have always been exposed to the um, other side, let's call it, um, for those that believe the spirit world. And it wasn't something I chose. It's something that was just naturally happening to me in me, in my life. And so I never had any fear. Uh, it was more of a curiosity around death and dying growing up. And then when I did my residency, I naturally gravitated towards anesthesiology and I was fascinated by 
the unknown realm, you know, where people go after you, sedate them. And I wanted to be there for them and make sure they felt comforted and, you know, not scared before they went under. And, um, and it had always been in the back of my mind to, to study hospice and, or to pursue hospice and palliative medicine, even during my anesthesiology training, because it is some, uh, something you can do immediately following your anesthesiology training. You can hop into a fellowship at that point. But I, I guess I wasn't ready because I think when you're not ready for something, even though it's in, your, in the back of your mind, you're not going to pursue it. You're not going to jump into it until you feel ready. So, True. you know, several years went by and I did a lot of soul searching and I did a lot of self-work. You know, I went through a lot of growth, um, healing and just self, self-work. And then as... I started getting to Reiki and learning more about energy work. A lot of things opened up for me. Um, and with that came self-empowerment and that came deeper self-knowledge. And then came the realization that I can't run away from this because this is who I am. And then other synchronicities started happening in my life where they were all pointing to you are meant to do death work. You are meant to work with the dying. Mm. And there was no denying it. There was not, not just not there, not just, there was no denying it, but there was a push, like an urge for me to just do it. And there was no fear around whether I could or not, or how could I f- afford to leave my, you know, sa- high salary job and enter into this fellowship for a year that doesn't pay anything. So all that fear disappeared when, when I knew that this was, this is who I was. And so finally, after, you know, getting my death doula training and uh, starting to host death cafes, I was basically, and I was also sitting on a board of directors for a hospice home. All of these things were just me expressing who I was in a non-medical way because I didn't have the fellowship, but I knew that this were, this was where I belonged. So when COVID came, I started hosting the death cafes so that I can provide a platform for people to come together and be able to talk openly about death and dying, knowing that I could serve as a very comfortable host and facilitator because I'm very interested and very comfortable sitting with people and their fears and their questions about death and dying, having been exposed to it for many years during my medical career in a medical way, of course. The death doula training I did a couple of years ago because I felt like I had to know what's missing in medicine, in Western medicine, as far as the presence of a physician. And that's what's missing, the presence, the loving kindness, and the presence, uh, not, not everywhere. I'm not, I'm not stereotyping you know, physicians everywhere and saying that everyone's missing it, but I think on a broader scale um, in general, in Western medicine, it's missing. Being able to be present, truly present for someone, especially at the end of their life. So I, I really enjoyed getting that training and just putting it into my bag of tools, let's say, you know. And um, move, move forward to, uh, you know, during COVID, I was running my death cafes, like I said, and it was transformational, just that experience alone for me as well. I grew a lot as a person from listening, just listening to people. 
And I also went to death cafes outside of my own so I can learn and grow. And I did. And in August of 2020, I decided, well, actually in March or April or May, I decided to go ahead and pursue the fellowship. So mind you, I had no job. I hadn't worked for seven months. I had no income, but I was aligned. I was aligned so deeply with this that I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, the rest will fall into place. I said, the rest will fall into place because this is who I'm, who I am. And this is what I am meant to do. So I applied for the fellowship while I was not working, having no idea where I was going to end up as far as, and also I had, you know, personal things that I was dealing with that necessitated at least six months of recovery and healing from that. So even though I had these obstacles in my way, I did not let them stop me. I applied for the fellowship in August. And I had interviews by Zoom. I did not match where I applied, but I got uh, what's called a scramble. This this process called a scramble after match day comes where uh, people, Programs that have not filled their spots reach out to applicants that did not match at their desired programs, and they invite them for interview. So that's what happened, and I interviewed at three or four different places, and I finally got an acceptance that came through on December second, um, later in December, the second week of December. So that's how that happened, and um, yes, I'm I'm excited. Congratulations that you have got the fellowship and you're about to start, right? You haven't started yet. Yeah, I'm starting in July, July 1st. July. Okay, that's wonderful. So you talked about this, is it death doula training? What training exactly is this? And you talked about learning about presence, true presence, that something, this is something missing. Is that what you learned in the training? Yeah, so death doula is, um, Death, anyone can be a death doula. It's, it's a non-medical way to be with people that are dying in their families, right. to provide them support, mostly emotional, psychological. And there are some tac, you know, tactile ways you can help them, like running errands or you know, handling paperwork after a death or helping patients with advanced directives and their families or doing legacy work. And like I said, anyone can do it. There are different ways to train to be one. Uh, there's no regulatory board. There's no you know credentials that you have to um, get approved for. It's an art, you know. But there are different people that are educating across the country and in the UK as well, in other countries, Australia, and it's becoming international slowly. People just want to sit with a the dying. They know it. It's their calling. It's their path. And they can have any job on on the outside, but they can also do it on the side or they can take it on as a full-time job and have a business basically, Mm -hmm. or they can work in hospices um, or in hospitals if they employ them. Right. So they learn, you know, about basic and basic physiology of death and dying uh, as well as depending on the school that teaches it, Uh, it can either be a weekend training or it can be, an online course that you take self-paced on your own for several months. Mm. And some places certify you though, you know, that's sometimes people have a issue with that certification process because everybody has a different certification process. It's not uniform. 
I see. No, mm. really interesting. I never came across that. It's the first time I heard about that when I read your bio. I, I want to move on to talking about Desk Cafe because you mentioned that. Before we even go there, I guess I just want to acknowledge that we don't talk about death and dying on a regular basis. Um, it's like, oh, something we don't want to talk about. And sometimes young children become very insecure when they think that, okay, their parents are getting older and they they, they suddenly have this fear of my, my parents are going to get older than me and at some point they're going to die. And so I remember my even my kids talk, had went through this period when they were worried about me dying. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's not that I have any health problems or anything at all or that's they you know that I was facing some problem is it was just out randomly I think maybe maybe it was their friends you know something happened in school and they were talking about dying but they came home and um, my elder daughter now she's a teenager she is 15 years old but when she was very young she used to get scared of us even going away somewhere just for an hour or so just in case something happened to mommy or if mommy and daddy went up together Being a doctor, I guess we all have encountered patients dying, but in our profession is even trickier because, you know, we are talking about very serious untoward incidents where, you know, people kill themselves. And so, especially for, you know, in the profession, when a death happens, which is, which is not normal death, when it's an accidental and if, if it's something that um, you think as a, as a professional you should have stopped or prevented, there comes a lot of um, very heavy emotions with it, like, you know, sadness and you know, upset and guilt, you know, I should have done something more. So there's a whole range of, you know, what you know people think about when they think of that. And I'm just throwing it in because I just want to acknowledge that um, you can call it, it's a taboo subject for some, sometimes, you know, for some people, especially if there is a loss of, um, like I said, an unnatural death, for example. So I know that when you talk about that cafe, you also bring in love. You you mm -hmm. told me that. So it's like Death Cafe and uh, Death Cafe Love Project. So when I asked you last time, you said, hey, Rani, why don't you go and check it out? So I tried to do that as part of uh, getting ready for this um, for this interview. And I came across someone's cafe and they put two lines there that I want to read out because I'm sure then, then I would like to hear I'm sure you, our um, listeners would like to hear what you have to say. But this is one of the definition I came across. The death cafe gives us a chance to explore our feelings around death and dying. By sharing our stories, we can look at what death and dying means to us and how we want to live our lives. What really matters in the end. That's what they say. And then the other one I came across is the premise was simple. People go along, drink tea, eat cake and discuss death, not to be morbid, just to raise awareness and to help people make the most of their finite lives. So those are the two things I came across. So over to you, Agapi. So what would you like to um, share with people about the Death Cafe? I think the biggest misconception people have about, you know, chat rooms or groups where people come together to speak about death is that, it's going to be depressing and it's going to be, it's going to make them feel heavy and sad and they don't want to come mm. um, unless they're in the death field and they, they enjoy this kind of thing. But um, what I would say is that nobody leaves a death cafe feeling down or depressed. In fact, they feel 
they leave the cafe feeling inspired and moved and want to come back for more because they feel like it's a space where they can not speak if they don't want to speak, but they can just feel safe and they can feel safe to learn and to listen and to speak and share vulnerably because it's a space where people are respectful and they listen to you and they care. People that come to death cafes are very present, generally speaking, depending on who runs it and how they run it. I run my cafe in a very sacred way, let's call it, because I want to make sure that everybody's seen and heard and feels welcome and feels non-threatened by anyone there, meaning they will be allowed time to speak, you know, without being interrupted. There is no judgment. Nobody's going to criticize you or correct you or tell you that your viewpoint is wrong or that you should do this for your problem. Uh, we are just there to listen to one another and to, to allow each other to be human and with our fears or, you know, views and just sit there and be present because we lack that. Even healthcare workers are, let's say, work in the medical field. A lot of times our significant others or friends or family, they're not able to be present for us. They're not able to, not because they don't love us, because they don't know how to or because they're not comfortable. And so we, a lot of times people, you know, they crave that connection and they crave a place where someone can understand what they're going through regarding death and dying, whether it's in their own personal life or in their workspace, like as physicians, you know, sometimes I have, I've had physicians and nurses come to my death cafes and they tell me, you know what, this is so nice to be in a space where I'm understood, where somebody can listen to me without running away when I mention the word death. Because even as physicians, I'll tell you, Ronnie, I, when I tell my colleagues sometimes, hey, I'm going to be switching to hospice and palliative medicine, and they, their first reaction may be, oh, why do you want to do that? It's so depressing. Mm-hmm. You know? And then they run away. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you feel like you're home when you come to these death cafes because people don't do that. They don't run away. We don't run away. You know, we stay there and we listen. And we share openly and safely with no agenda. You bring what you want to bring and people will listen to you. And that's healing. It's a very healing space. So that's what I want to tell people is that you walk away feeling enriched and you walk away feeling like you want to go out and you, you want to live your life more meaningful because more, more in a more meaningful way, because you do realize that, that it is finite, but Hopefully you walk away feeling like like um, like your life is more intentional because you are more aware of death and you're more willing to accept that death is a reality. Mm. You are going to proceed with your life in a more intentional way and you're going to see things differently and you're going to maybe love deeper or, you know, talk to your neighbor that you haven't talked to or, look at your dog differently and pet it more or, you know, be more present and leave your iPhone inside and just see the birds and hear, you know, maybe start talking to your plants. I don't know. Everybody's different, you know, but um, that's what I would say. It's a gift. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I would never have thought about 
that cafe like this. I would also, and I, I'm, you know, I'm just being honest here, um, Agapi. So if people had ever mentioned, oh, um, going to the death cafe again, I would have said, that sounds so depressing. In, in, in a, it's like having, there's this thing about taboo topics or a stigma. And we talk about this as stigma against mental health issues, we say, but there's also a stigma about that. And, I was thinking, why can't you call it Presence Cafe? I mean, I, <laughs> and that's how I came to me. Like, why do we have to call it Death Cafe? Cafe? Because it seems like you're talking about um, living life meaningfully and in the best intention. But I guess what I'm hearing is there are lots of positivity cafe of some kind. People are talking about being happy, being grateful. And there are lots of this pop-up cafe everywhere. Even in Clubhouse, you have so many rooms of talking about gratitude, talking about joy and everything. But I haven't come across a place where they are also talking about the reality that at some point we'll all die. And, and mm. it's like we don't want to talk about that. So, And that can be depressing. But let's talk about uh, gratitude. Let's talk about love. That's, that's you know, wonderful. So I guess what I'm hearing is there's something about accepting the the reality that this form, this body, at some point will go back to dust from where we came. And but it's not about being fearful of that and saying, "Oh, um, I'm fearful," and or I, I I'll just not think about that, or or my loved one's dying at any point because I, you know uh, rather be in denial because it's so painful, and I'll just get on with that. I I think you're in a way what you are offering is let's be honest about that's the part of reality and how can we acknowledge that and live a very intentional life while we're still alive so is that it yeah that's definitely it um it's it's helping people not live in denial and uh, it frees them from suffering because of, of their denial uh from suffering and not in being able to enjoy life as deeply because they're in denial about this big the most the biggest reality of life is that it ends. And the other beautiful thing that this death cafe attracts sometimes is terminal patients, term, patients that are on hosp- in hospice or who are just imminently dying. And they want to have a platform to express their own fears, you know, and that's a different level of learning from, from people that are imminently dying who are coming to your cafes Um yeah, it's been a tremendous, tremendous experience. And like I said, even though you come and express your fears about death, we also talk about life and love and we laugh. There's laughter in every death cafe. So it's not all dark and depressing. It's very much a place of feeling inspired and hopeful and and positive when you leave. And majority of people return. I'm just thinking about who might be searching for things like this. Is it people who have been diagnosed with some kind of um, condition where they know that life is short and, you know, they have got a label of some kind? Because I'm thinking if someone is very fit and healthy and they have everything going well, you know, so to speak, relatively, they might not even be looking for something like this. So I just wondered who enters your cafe. So we have such a broad range of ages and backgrounds. I mean, I've had teenagers come, um, 18 year olds. Really? Yes. Uh, who are just in college who are very curious about death and dying and are willing to go there and explore that and are not afraid. Or they've had an elderly, you know, family member, let's say who's sick and they're just exploring that side of, 
you know, reality in life. And they are very, you know, um, intellectually curious and, um, but also have had people who are 90 who are healthy, who just know they're approaching, you know, naturally the end of their life. And they're fascinated by the topic because everybody's talking about it. And, you know, naturally it's part of their daily thought process. So, and anyone in between, it doesn't have to be, uh, there's a lot of obviously hospice workers that attend because it's your passion and they just want to talk about it in the process of their day. And a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of social workers end up coming. Really? That's oh. a, a big bulk of who comes is a psychotherapist as well as hospice workers. And then the people that are not into medicine or healthcare at all, they're just normal humans who just want to talk about death and dying and ages are irrelevant. And there's a lot of wisdom that comes from any age because, you know, ages, in my opinion, is irrelevant when it comes to soul wisdom and what it has accumulated. And I, I love hearing from all ages and all, all perspectives and because we're all humans, you know, you hang your coat at the door, so to speak, when you come into the death cafe, we're not there to talk about who we are professionally so much as we are to talk about uh, as humans, who we are as humans and what connects us, you know, mm. and death is that one thing that connects us all. Mm. One of the things that I, uh, is coming up for me, which I want to put out there to see what you say is just this niggling concern I'm having at the moment. Say someone has been contemplating ending their life because they are, they are so uh, so much in pain, so much in suffering. There might be other people who are in the same place as me and they're thinking, oh, what if someone has been thinking about killing themselves? What's stopping them is a fear of death. What if they go to a death cafe and actually they don't have a fear of death and end up killing themselves? So what would you say to something like that? It's interesting you ask because uh, we've actually had a um, couple people pop in who were suicidal, who would persistently come though, month after month after month. And, you know, we don't claim to be, and we make that claim at the beginning, disclaimer, that we are not therapists, we are not psychotherapists, and we are not here to treat any condition or offer advice on, you know, how you should live your life or whether you should end your life or not end your life, we are not here for that. But we also make it very clear that the death cafes are life affirming, meaning we're not here to, um, you know, focus on suicide or, you know, whether, but we are, we can say that, you know, there are resources, for example, if you want resources, there are available resources and we may help that person after the death cafe or outside of the death cafe deal with that if they so wish but um you know everybody has different perspectives on suicide and it's an open topic there's no agenda like i said so if somebody wants to talk about it we talk about it everybody has different thoughts and opinions on what suicide is how it should be viewed um from all angles you know from a moral angle from an ethical angle from a spiritual angle and a lot of people are religious but a lot of people are not so we welcome all views, um, but again, we don't let we, the facilitation of Death Cafe does not allow for, you know, somebody who's let's say suicidal to come in and just take over and um, and that has tried to happen and that's why you have facilitation. You have someone that kind of not, you know helps people stay uh, because you have to respect you have to respect the the reasons that people come to Death Cafe. 
And so if somebody comes in and disrupts, you know, the flow of what a death cafe is and what it's supposed to serve, how it's supposed to serve the people that are coming there, then you have to, you know, kind of pull people aside and say, you know, we cannot address this issue here today, but I can talk to you, you know, outside of the death cafe and help you find ways to whatever they need. Mm. But, you know, facilitation is very important because depending on your, the death cafe, uh, you'll see the, the facilitation can make or break a cafe or the lack of facilitation. So the integrity of the death cafe for me means that people can come in and feel safe, right? Mm-hmm. And feel safe to ex- express themselves and feel safe that they're not going to be attacked or that somebody's not going to come in and be angry or yell at them. So I have to make sure of that without um, making feel somebody, making someone feel that they're not respect or, or heard so if somebody comes in and says hey i'm suicidal let's let's talk about that um i have to find ways to address that person and their needs without disrupting the rest of the death cafe mm. so there are ways to do it but you have to be sensitive to everyone's feelings yeah thank you for that i'm reassured by the fact that the whole essence of death cafe is life affirming getting people to realize that no matter what their experiences are in life, that life is worth living. And that's what I'm hearing. I guess what I'm thinking is when people are struggling and thinking, you know, the only way forward is by ending their life is because they find life so painful. Whereas if you are actually there making the space for people feeling safe maybe they never felt safe before and even they if they keep coming back to the space is because they find the space very nurturing very safe very you know giving unconditional love they also feel listened to i guess sometimes when people are driven towards doing something quite drastic like you know taking their own own life is because in a way they feel unheard uh, unsafe not listened to not valued and i guess the whole, the, the, what you're pointing to is, although the name might sound bleak to people, but actually it is, also it says death cafe. It, in a way, it's life cafe, it's life affirming, but you will be talking about that's something which we don't talk about, which is about death. That's yes, beautiful. we also talk about, um, it is life affirming, but we also bring up topics like medical aid in dying, you know, when you're terminal and you're suffering, And, you know, we talk about the states in the U.S. at least that give access, legal access to medical aid in dying, which is um, patient um, administered euthanasia, basically. Mm -hmm. But um, it's administered by the patient given by an order from the physician and what that means. And so people can express their own views and feelings about that. So, Mm -hmm. yes, it is life affirming, but it's also we can also talk about topics that. Uh, patient right, patient patient rights at the end of life. So that's another aspect of it. Mm. But it can be anything. People talk about different burial uh, methods. Uh, we have a lot of funeral directors that come that come and speak and about their practices and educate. There's a lot of education that goes on in death cafes. Mm. So there are a lot of professionals that come uh, from all kinds of you know death related professions. And they share their insight and educate people. And so that's another aspect of Death Cafes. There's a lot of education that goes on as well. I see. So, um, Agapi, is there anything that 
I, I, you know, you said you have been to other death cafes and you have set up your own cafe and you are a, um, a, a, a medical professional. You're also a Reiki master and a, you, you know, you have done all this energy work and so on. And you call your death cafe, uh, death cafe love project. So is there anything unique in your cafe that you provide? That's a good question. I've been to a lot of death cafes. Um, so when I started my death cafes in April, I would hold them once or every two weeks on a Sunday. So two times a month. And then after September, uh, October, let's say I went to once a month because I got busier. And I, so f- while I was sitting at home, not working, planning my life and running death cafes, I attended a lot of death cafes. I had a lot of downtime and there was a lot of isolation during the first few months of COVID. So it was my lifeline. It was my sanity. And I would just be on Zoom pretty much every night of the week, connecting with people and talking about my favorite subjects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I learned a lot about death cafes, how different people operate and what they bring. And the most important thing is the person facilitating or hosting the death cafe is really largely who will be attracted to that person is who the facilitator is and their energy will attract like a magnet, the people that want to be there. And it is true that depending on who who shows up in any given death cafe kind of dictates the, the whole overall feeling and energy of the, of the cafe. But, but those people show up to a specific death cafe because they're attracted to the facilitator for some reason, right. Or the way that they run it. So mine, you know, what I don't, what I like to do is I like to announce at the beginning what a death cafe is and how I run my death cafe. And I want to make sure people understand that the most important thing for me is to make people feel safe, feel respected. And like, they're not going to be interrupted. They're going to be heard and by, I also do set up guidelines such as you have to be mindful of the time that you take to speak so that everyone has enough time to speak. And gauging on how big the group is, let's say I have five people show up versus 16. I will, you know, allow more time, obviously, for a smaller group per person. Um, and I will also people remind people that you're never going to feel under pressure to speak. If you don't want to speak, I'm not going to call on you, right? <clears throat> But I've been to death cafes, for example, that have had very little facilitation or no facilitation and people just kind of talk on top of one another and there's Mm. chaotic, you know, like interruptions. And um, in my death cafe, I ask people to raise their hand if they want to speak and mute themselves when they're done speaking so that we know that the next person can, you know. So everybody feels like this is their time to speak and they have time and people are listening. You know, and uh, a lot of uh, other cafes that doesn't exist. And also in other cafes that I've been to, there's an agenda. People come in and say, okay, we're going to talk about this, this and that. And they present three questions and then everybody has to go around answering those questions. And I feel that uh, in my in my cafe, I don't, I want to make it more organic. And I don't want to force people or put people on the spot. Mm. Sometimes people are afraid enough to not even want to come. So I don't want to, you know, I want people to feel free to speak, but not obligated. 
And also I want people to come up with their own topics of discussion. And if there's silence, and sometimes there is silence because people are not sure what to say or whether they should say something, then I think that's beautiful. And it's a beautiful pause for sacred silence, as I call it, because it's healing. It's an opportunity to sit with yourself and reflect on what has just been spoken by someone else, let's say. It's t- it allows time for processing. And it also brings up a lot of uncomfortable feelings because for a lot of people, silence is very uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with it because yeah. they have to stop and look at themselves and that's uncomfortable. So I tell people I'm very sensitive to that because even though I'm very comfortable in silence, doesn't mean that everyone is. So I tell people, it's an, I tell people what it could provide for them, but I understand that they may not want to go there. They may not be ready for that. So I tell people, if you need to check out, you know, turn the lights off or your audio video, walk away, get some water or just sit there. I promise not to make it very long or to allow it to go you know, past like a minute. But everybody, the feedback that I get from these natural organic, you know, silence pauses because I don't, I don't announce that there's going to be silence, right? I don't say, okay, let's be silent now. It just happens. And when it happens, it's natural and I allow it. And if no one speaks for, I don't know, a minute later, I'll jump in and say, you know, let's talk about that. Or what do you think about this? But I find the feedback I've gotten is very positive and people welcome it. You know, there's been one or two people that have said, oh, it makes me so uncomfortable. And then I'll say, I understand that because I've been there too. I wasn't always comfortable with silence, but it's a reflection of what may be going inwards, inward, you know, and maybe take a look at and sit with that feeling, you know, why are you uncomfortable? Have you ever thought about that? You know, and so it's an invitation for growth as well. I loved what you said, uh, how you, you know, the, the adjective for the silence, sacred silence. Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of people feel very uncomfortable just being quiet or not even doing anything. It's like we need to keep doing something right. or, and we have to say something. Silence mm-hmm. is not, you know, silence is not good. It's like children talking about feeling bored. I can't feel bored. You know, boring is, you know, it's not cool. You know, I have to do something. And again, we need to unlearn, isn't it? We need to unlearn that, that we think we need to keep doing something or we need to say something and mm-hmm. how, how therapeutic just being quiet is or not having mm-hmm. anything to say is. Thank you for that. Uh, I also want to comment on why I titled it Love Project. Yes, please. It's because during COVID, when we had, uh, I think, April or May, when the civil unrest started happening in the United States, at least, with the police brutality and um, the politics surrounding Trump and all the violence that was taking place and the racial tensions um, and the LGBTQ, you know, the, the tensions surrounding race inequality and Uh, gender inequality, sorry. Um, There was just so much pain on so many different levels, but COVID trauma. And then on top of that, we had, you know, the race uh, violence, the police violence and um, gender inequality issues and everything else. And then it spread globally. There were riots everywhere. So I opened it up to the general public because initially my death cafes were for healthcare workers. But when I saw how much pain there was, I said, no, everyone needs to be have access to these platforms, you know. So I, t- I titled it Law Project um, because I wanted to make sure that everyone felt inclusive, included and 
seen and heard for who they were, for the mere fact that they were human. And that's all that matters to me. In fact, I had written that in my description on deathcafe.com. I said, as long as you're human, you can come. And I said, heck, even if you're not, you know, as a, as a, as a humor. <laughs> but that's my, my goal is to moving forward in end of life care is to, um, to really target the underserved populations and inject love to where it's needed the most, you know, the people that have never felt it, have always felt like an outsider um, or to those people that have never had access to it. So that's why. No, that's beautiful. I also read in your um, Clubhouse bio, you, you put one line about love. You said, love is all that matters in the end. It's the only truth. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that? Love is all that matters in the end. I think I came up with that maybe a couple of years ago and it just stuck with me. I'm like, this is going to become my motto. <laughs> and um, because it is something that I think about all the time and it's part of who I am. And I said, when people are dying and they are in full awareness, maybe not acceptance yet, but they're in full awareness that they are, this is it for them. Their life is ending. There's a lot of shedding that happens. Um, the layers fall off and you start to see the real person. You start to see what matters and they start expressing what matters and they start being less afraid. And you, you basically start to see their soul mm. more. If you couldn't see it before, you can see it now. And at the last moments, that's all that matters in the end is how much they've loved, you know, how they were loved and that's all that they talk about is the people around them who love them or who they love. And what will remain is their memory and the love, the memories that they made. And so that's where, and we, co and we are love, right? We are made from love and our essence is love and we go back to that. So to me, that statement uh, is, I say that statement to maybe, inspire people in the present to be to be in the present and to remember that mm. we're all gonna die and so why not try to be try to get to that place of love you know before that before we are told we're dying i was exactly thinking about that like why wait until we are on a deathbed I haven't witnessed it myself, but a lot of people talk about being near a loved one who is taking the last breath. And it's like in those few moments, they can feel the radiance. They can just feel the love. Mm -hmm. There's no, before there might have been lots of worry or anxiety about different things, including the fact of dying. But once they are there, it's like, it's a pure love that, that radiance. I guess when we are going about life, we are so caught up in the mundane, like, oh, this, you know, the life is so stressful and we are worrying about finance or job or relationships and we are not living. If there's an opportunity for us to have conversations like that on a regular basis where we are not waiting until something happens to us because it could be very accidental. Even if you are very careful and we are living a very healthy life and everything, something could happen. And who knows, you know, that, that cuts short this life of being human. And how important these sort of conversations are about where we just tune in and we, and we look at what's beyond this body, what's beyond this, this ego mind. 
And you mm-hmm. talked about consciousness when I heard you in the clubhouse. I'm sure you, you were the one who talked something deeper than just, you know, talking about problems. I, I just wonder whether you, know, you would like to say something about that because you did say about unknown realm. And, um, and I was thinking, oh, yes, we go into the unknown, uh, unknown realm when we are in deep sleep anyway. When we're in deep sleep, we're not thinking about the problems or, oh, I'm running as in this body. We are in an unknown realm. And that happens every single night when we're in deep sleep. How would you point people to that? I mean, I think I found that most people have their own um, opinions or beliefs about what happens to them after death. And it's very important not to influence people as they're, you know, as to their own thinking or what what they should think or believe after what happens to them after death, unless they specifically ask me about my own beliefs, you know, then I'll share them. But um, I don't ever try to steer someone in any direction or, you know, instill my own beliefs or values onto someone. I would never do that. But if you're asking me about my own beliefs, I can share that. Um, I mean, obviously, I've been a medium since a child, and so I'm very much connected to the spirit world, and I believe that their spirits and our energy is doesn't die. Our energy doesn't die. We come from um, an energetic spiritual place, and we return to that. And we are spirits in in clothes, in physical, Mm -hmm. in skin and bones and, and clothes, and we're having a human experience. And I think that when we die, we go... I mean, I, you know, communicate with spirits all the time. So it's, it's not unusual for me to think about. Um, and just because I'm comforted by the fact that when my physical body dies, I'm not, I'm not gone. I'm just, you know, um, out there somewhere in some form, in some other form. I also am human. And so, yes, I have, of course, fears and anxieties about the process of dying or the suffering that may come before dying. So I'm not out there, you know, pretending that just because I'm good with death and dying and comfortable talking about it, that I am above, you know, the human suffering and and pain. I'm not. I'm very much aware of it and an acceptance of it. Um, and I, I do practices. I do, you know, death meditations um, as well as contemplations. Like I visualize my own death sometimes or the death of my family members or my dog. And so I practice sitting in that space and trying to see what it feels like and try to see what comes up for me. And during COVID, you know, I I took it a little bit deeper and I experienced like different layers and levels of feeling because before it would be like a thought that would enter into my head when I first started doing this practice. And then the thought became a feeling during these meditations, right? And then sometimes as of recently, it even became a physical sensation in my body when I was, you know, experiencing when I was going through these meditations. And so it has really transformed to a place that's, that made me wonder, is this what death feels like, you know, when I'm actually feeling these things? Um, And I don't have an answer for that. You know, I'm still experiment, not experimenting, but I'm still exploring that. Yeah. I hope I answer your question. Yeah, no, no, thank you. I, I think you, you're right. We can, you know, it's ultimately we don't know, do we? It's only you know, our our own opinion, our beliefs, and our viewpoint that we can share with people, and different people will have different views. But what I have um, found for myself is, 
it's not something cognitive, you know, you can't just think your way through all these things. It's something like when we experience and, you know, people talk about oneness, but talking about oneness is very different to having an experience of oneness, knowing that there is more to us than just flesh and blood. And yes, um, I've even heard people talk about, you know, we are all uh, spiritual energy in disguise and it still fits with your exactly, you know, pointing. But when we go about life, we forget the spiritual energy. We are just focusing on the form and we are constantly in the form. And when, uh, when something very painful happens and in life, and I think we don't find the answer in form. We find that in just tuning into that sacred space you talk about in silence, when we are outdoors, um, just, you know, having walks and being, you know, just experiencing nature and realizing mm -hmm. that nature just is. So something that points us to the presence, the isness, that there's something more to life beyond flesh and blood is then we, we just get into that quiet space, don't we? And I'm mm -hmm. sure that's what uh, people experience when they come to your that cafe, yes. that just the space. So if people wanted to find out more about the cafe that you run, where would they find details of that, Agapi? I usually do one death cafe a month for now, uh, and it's always posted on deathcafe.com. Right. And the title of it would be Death Cafe Love Project. Right. So depending on what day I decide to post it, um, they can scroll down or do a search for Death Cafe Love Project and see what the next cafe date will be. And I also sometimes, uh, not sometimes, I usually post it on uh, Facebook events and it's public. So it will appear under Facebook events. Okay. I advertise on Instagram um, for at least maybe a week or two in advance. So okay. it's uh, Dr. Agapi. Anyone is welcome to follow yeah. me. One final thought to anyone who's listening to this podcast interview. I would say that um, love is the most powerful force in existence and it has the power to shift reality. And um, that's my focus in life and death is love and the two are intertwined. So I would, I would think that even if people don't want to talk about death, focus on love. And when you do that, the fear kind of dissipates in general. Oh, that's so beautiful, Agafi. I love it. I would welcome my listeners to definitely check out uh, Dr. Agapi and her amazing work. On Clubhouse too, you know, yes. you know, I'm there too. Oh, yes, definitely on Clubhouse. And Agapi and I might be doing a room at some point. We don't know when, but, uh, you know, we definitely connect. And if you're curious about um, that Cafe Love Project, check into the next one that she might be running and it's only once a month so yeah we'll post it soon it might be the second or third sunday in april and i will be posting it soon so check in the next week fantastic one more thing i must just quickly say is that death the, a lot of people that do death work they don't want to use a euphemism they want to use the word death because it is it's death and they don't want to sugarcoat it or you know make it sound more pleasant because they want people to to really accept it yeah. And we are, you know, aware of what it means. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Agapi. Really Thank lovely to talk to me. you. It was a pleasure. So I have to be honest here. Initially, when I knew I wanted to ask Agapi about that cafe, and I had some concerns about this term called that cafe. It sounded so bleak. It sounded so depressing. Why would 
people want to have a cafe and talk about death. And I was so pleasantly surprised following my conversation with Agape, the way she explained it. We talk about mental illness being a taboo subject and having stigma, but the same is the case for death. And I really found her view on it refreshing.